Good morning, church. The reading this morning is Genesis 8, 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were in him, with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the depth deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The waters receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the seventh day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the top of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a door he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the coverings from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of animal creature, every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moved on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Well, if you don't already have a scripture reading sheet in front of you, grab one of those uh, or raise your hand and one of the people in the back will bring it to you. Um, But let's pray together and ask for God's help as we look at his words. Lord God, we thank you that you speak through your words. We thank you that you are going to speak to us through this story of Noah and the ark. Please help us to see what you are saying to us through it and to not um, have our eyes uh, veiled because of the familiarity of this story, but open our eyes afresh. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it going to take to bring about a brave new world? What's it going to take to bring about a brave new world? we, We see the world that we live in, and its problems are obvious enough. Its evils are there for all to see, the pandemics and the poverties and the the violence and the oppression. But how can we move from the world that now is into a better world, 
into a new world. Well, in 1989, the Japanese political philosopher Francis Fukuyama, who some of you may have heard of, he wrote a very influential essay in 1989. He later、uh, converted it into a book, a, a longer piece, and it was entitled "The End of History?" Question mark. The end of history. In it, he argued that at the end of the Cold War and the fall of the USSR, that that signaled the beginning of a new era of human flourishing in the world. The ideological struggles of history—they had come to an end, and Western liberal democracy had arisen victorious, had triumphed. And this is a quote from that work. He said. What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. He was saying, in a sense, humanity has arrived. Here we are. The only thing left was for news of that victory to spread around the world. But of course, the last 32 years since the end of history have proven that history hasn't ended at all, has it? History has not ended, and humanity has not entered into a brave new world. Western liberal democracy is one option among a number still competing. Still promising to bring about this new era of human flourishing. In China, we find another plan for human flourishing, for a new world. We see、uh, that President Xi believes that a return to stronger forms of communism, or socialism with Chinese characteristics, a stronger form of that will do away with the inequality and, and bring about common prosperity. And so he's bringing in. Uh, through economic and social reorganization,、uh, this this promise of a, a true utopia, delivering on all the promises of Marxism, and then in in Afghanistan we find another strategy to bring about a brave new world, as the Taliban establishes an Islamic caliphate and and every area of life is rigorously. Governed by Sharia law, well, the hope is that through that,、uh, evil will be done away with. Society will become morally upright and economically prosperous. If only we obey God, Allah. Now, we here may be more or less sympathetic to all those strategies. We might be more or less sympathetic to. The Islamists, to the communists, to the liberal democracies, but I hope that each of us can see that in their own way, they're all aiming at bringing about that new world. Do you see? And they all agree, no matter how different they are, and they are very different. They all agree that that new world can be brought about by human effort, don't they? More religious observance. Or more economic development, or more political maneuvering, and then we will arrive. But according 
to the teachings of the Bible in general and, and according to the story of the flood in particular, they are all so many fantasies that will never realize their aims. The story of Noah shows us that the only way into a brave new world is through cataclysmic judgment and through divine redemptive grace. That's the only way we're going to get there. Over the last few weeks in Genesis, we've seen the effects of sin spreading throughout the world after Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. Humanity became subject to both death and to moral corruption, to the extent that God declared over all of mankind every inclination of the the human heart was only evil all the time. And the earth was filled with violence, we saw last week. And because of that, God did what was just. He judged the world and wiped out human corruption with a flood. He was, in a sense, winding back the clock to day two of creation, when the waters covered over the face of the deep, before dry land had been separated from the waters. And and while at the same time he was doing that, he preserved one righteous man, Noah, and his family. And not just his family, but a boatload of animals as well. They were all saved from God's judgment. And in our reading from Genesis 8 this morning, we see that the decisive moment of humanity emerging into this brave new world uh, of uh, cleansed of all corruption has arrived. Now, in order to see the the point of this story clearly, we need to understand that the author of Genesis has structured this story very precisely into ten different scenes. So in scenes one to five, it builds up to the point of judgment, to destruction, starting with when God addresses Noah and warns him of the coming flood and ending with the waters triumphing over the whole earth for 150 days. All flesh destroyed. So that scenes 1 to 5, but then in scenes 6 to 10 of this account, it starts with the waters receding over the face of the earth for 150 days. And it ends, scene 10 ends, with God promising Noah to preserve life on earth. So the whole story of Noah and the ark and the flood is like a ten-layer sandwich. So on the outside, you have the bread on both sides. Inside of that, you have layers of lettuce, layers of tomatoes, then the meat's in the middle, the cheese in the middle, right? So it's mirrored. The first five are mirrored by the last five in this story. The technical term for that sort of mirrored style of uh, storytelling is a chiasm. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's a chiasm. It's a very common structure throughout Scripture. So you see it in the Old Testament all over the place. You see it in the New Testament all over the place. And in a a chiasm, in that storytelling style... The decisive main point of the entire story is found right in the middle of the sandwich. 
okay? It's found right in the middle, and that is the hinge on which the whole story turns. And what we find right in the middle of Noah's story is chapter 8, verse 1. Let me read it again. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, when God remembers, he doesn't just think about the past. When he remembers Lot, he saves him from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God remembers Rachel, he delivers her a child out of her infertility. When God remembers Israel, he rescues them from slavery in Egypt. When God remembers, God acts. When he remembers his people, he saves. And in the story of the flood, everything suddenly changes when God remembers Noah. So the floodwaters that were increasing for 150 days, they start decreasing for 150 days. And Noah and the animals who had moved into the ark to escape judgment, well, suddenly the action is that they're trying to move out of the ark to find salvation. And God's promise of a coming destruction that had dominated the first half of the story becomes a promise of ongoing preservation. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. In that moment, everything changed. And yet, in that moment, Noah couldn't perceive a change. In fact, the ark was still bobbing up and down on the tops of the water without any place to land for many months after that point. In fact, if anything, it seemed the judgment got worse because suddenly there was this wind blowing across the water and it's not enough that the entire earth is flooded. Now this wind is, is driving the boat across the face of the deep. From Noah's perspective, there was no change. But the decisive moments of grace had arrived. And from that moment onward, everything was working together for Noah's salvation. But Noah didn't recognize it as grace until much later in his story. And that, I think, is the first point I want to draw out of this story for you this morning. The fact that God's grace to us is not always recognized as God's grace until much later. What do I mean? Well, you might be familiar with these verses from Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28. It says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now maybe you have heard those verses quoted to you or quoted to somebody else in a trite sort of way when, when someone's going through a real hardship 
And maybe these verses were used to say to you, to suggest that a Christian should never be upset by uh, bad things that happen, by suffering. Or that a Christian maybe should never experience suffering. Some people use it like that. But I think that this passage in Romans is telling us in a sort of propositional way exactly what Noah's story is telling us in a sort of narrative way that in the life of the Christian, the decisive moment of grace has come and, and when we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is when we are remembered by God and he begins to act for our salvation. From that moment onward in our life, every single fact, event, and experience we go through is pushing towards the ultimate goal in our life of our redemption, our salvation, our glorification with Christ. But we may not be able to recognize it as grace until much later. Do you see? Well, over recent months, I've spoken to Uh, Many people, both within the church and outside of the church, who have faced real suffering. Uh, The pain of serious illness in in them or the ones they love. The betrayal uh, of a marriage or a relationship. The sorrow of the death of a child. The gloom of persistent mental illness. And what the Bible teaches is that for the non-Christian, those are signs of judgment. Every safe haven that they've tried to make for themselves apart from a relationship with the living God is being shown to be nothing. The, The floodwaters are rising and increasing and triumphing over every mountaintop in their life. But for the Christian... Every single one of those same experiences will be revealed to be instruments of grace in God's hands. Do you see the difference? For the Christian, the decisive moment of grace has come, and God remembers you. The waters rage, the wind blows, but God is using it all to bring about your salvation. What is destructive to the non-Christian becomes redemptive to the Christian. The same experiences. Not because the Christian escapes hardship, not because the Christian keeps a positive attitude, but because God has promised to do it, and he does it. And we might not recognize it, but we will. And I just want to say to some of you, if you're going through real suffering and real difficulty right now, that you might not be able to see it, but one day you will. You'll see it as God's grace to you. Now, how can that be? How can it be? How can the worst tragedies of life that befall us 
How can that be God's grace? And yet, that's what Scripture tells us. That it is, and it will be, and you will see it, and you will say, I get it now. I mean, how good is that? what God will do with all his people is what he's promised to do. It's what he did for Noah. That God remembered Noah and, and he acted to save Noah. But Noah couldn't see it for months. And we might not see it for decades. Now we've only worked through the first half of the first verse of this long reading, and so we have to press on, but I hope you see the beauty of that. And I hope whatever you're going through in your life, that gives you the hope to persevere. Even though that's the heart of Noah's story, it is not where the story ends. From verse 1b, the second half of verse 1, through to the end of the chapter, we see the world which was decreated by God in the flood being recreated by God. So in the same way that God's Spirit hovered over the face of the deep at creation in Genesis 1, we now see His Spirit or, or wind, ruach is the word, could be spirit, could be wind, blowing over the earth. He again separates the waters above from the waters below. Again, dry land emerges. The author of Genesis is clearly telling us this is a new creation coming about, cleansed by the waters of judgment. And in verses 6 to 14, we find Noah using the tools of an ancient mariner, an ancient seafarer, to assess the situation. Ancient Near Eastern records and nautical practices as recent as the 19th century, show that sailors all over the world used doves and ravens and other birds to help them navigate in uh, their, their journeys, navigate towards land. So ravens, when they fly up, they will fly uh, straight to land, directly towards land. So by following a raven, the, the ship can navigate to shore. Doves aren't able to fly very far, apparently, They don't have much endurance, and so they can determine how close a ship might be to land. Because if they go and they land somewhere else, well, you know that land isn't that far away, because a dove can't fly far. But if they come back to the ship, you know you're still a ways off from the land. With the help of the birds, Noah is assessing the situation and patiently waiting for the day of salvation to arrive. And note particularly that as he waits, he receives the the dove back into the ark in verse 9 with uh, what I think is a beautiful picture, a beautiful imagery. The dove couldn't find anywhere to perch because there was water over the surface of of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. And he reached out his hand and he took the dove and he brought it back to himself in the ark in contrast to the violence that preceded the flood. Here we have a picture of the tenderness and care of Noah 
whose name means rest, you'll remember. He cares for the dove who couldn't find any rest, and he brings it back to himself, and he gives it rest. And this is a picture of humanity as it's created to be, caring for creation, obeying God. And when the day of salvation finally arrives, as Noah and his family and all the living creatures of of the earth, they descend out of the ark, verse 17, the, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, I think we're meant to envision here a new Adam descending onto a new earth surrounded by a new creation. And the big question that we should be asking on the verge of this brave new world is, how did it come about? How did it come about? Well, the new world came about entirely by God's initiative. When we remember the story, we easily put Noah at the front and the center of the story as though he's a great hero. And yet, when we actually read the story, we see... Noah doesn't say anything. In fact, Noah doesn't do anything that he's not directly commanded by God to do. He's something of a blank slate in this story. If he's meant to be the main character, what a dull and boring main character he is. But he's not the main character. God is the main character in Noah's story. And all along the way, the author drives... Uh, puts, puts God as the driver in the seat of the events of history. So God sees the evil of humanity and he decides to bring judgment. God tells Noah to prepare the, the ark and, and for the flood and God commands Noah and his family and animals to enter the ark and he shuts them up in the ark. And God remembers Noah and God commands Noah, now it's time to leave the ark. And the message is clear. The work of bringing about a new creation was entirely God's own work done entirely without aid. Only God brings about the world we all long for. And yet Christians very often get confused. And they think that we are in some way responsible for building the kingdom of God on earth. So some churches, they get fired up about transforming the world. They pour their energies into transforming the city and campaigning against injustice and alleviating poverty and getting the bright politicians elected. You can see examples of all those sorts of things. The church thinking, we must do something to make the earth what it's meant to be, to bring about the new creation in the belief that they'll be able to do it. Now, all those things might be good things to do. As Christians, we aren't against doing those things, but what is the motive? If the motive is that by our sheer determination, we will be able to pull our nation, to pull our city, to pull our neighborhood out of the flaming wreck that it is and to make it the glorious new creation that we want it to be, well then we are bound to be frustrated, we are bound to be disappointed, ultimately we're bound to get burnt out and to give up. Because you and I cannot bring about 
the new creation. God alone can do it. It's way above your pay grade and mine. Christ is the only one that can transform this broken world into the glorious new creation, and he doesn't need our help to do it. In Revelation, you might remember the, the new Jerusalem, that the heavenly city descends out of heaven. It's not built on earth, but it comes down. And the scriptures cannot make it more clear that God is the only one who can bring about his new creation. So what is our part? It's simply to obey, to preach the gospel, and to allow Christ to establish his kingdom in his time, the church, to live lives of integrity and to leave the results to him, to love our neighbors in word and deed, so that we can point them to Jesus, the only hope in the flood. And what a wonderful relief it should be to us that, uh, that rather than constant frustration of trying to do God's job for him, we get to just watch God's gracious, saving work unfold in our lives, in the lives of other people, and we get to celebrate what he is doing rather than frustrating ourselves. We lose the exciting sense that we're the main characters. We don't get to to think that it all depends on us if we take the Bible seriously. But then again, we stop watching the wrong show. We stop telling the wrong story. God is bringing about the new world. Our part is much more simple and therefore much more joyful. When the Apostle Peter looks back on um, God's gracious salvation through the ark, he sees there a paradigm for God's gracious salvation through the church. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22 says this. He speaks of the ark when he says, In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so according to Peter, water baptism, which is the sign through which we enter into the church, that's how somebody is welcomed in as a member of the church, is a symbolic representation of the floodwaters. In baptism, all the sin and rebellion of our old life apart from Christ, is symbolically drowned in the waters of judgment. By it, God cleanses us not outwardly, but inwardly in our conscience and raises us to a new life with Christ. So in baptism, the waters symbolize God's judgment against sin. Those are the same waters that symbolize God's redemption of his people. It's two sides of the same coin. Salvation through judgment. For the Christian, God's judgment has been transformed into God's grace. That's always the story. Adam and Eve rebelled. They destroyed the original creation. Their descendants followed in their footsteps. The flood cleaned the slate 
And as Noah descends into the new world, we're briefly left in the suspense of, is this now accomplished? Have we arrived in the new creation? But soon enough we see that even with an entirely blank slate, humanity is not up to the task. The corruption that was wiped off the face of the earth while it's stowed away in the ark with Noah, and soon enough it spreads out again. But just as humanity can't achieve a brave new world for itself, it can't screw it up either. That's the story of the Bible. We can't screw it up. God will bring it about. And all he calls us to is faith in Christ and an attempt to live for him. Jesus fully and finally delivers salvation through judgment. You will one day see how every horror, every sadness, every uh, frustration in your life has been used by God for your redemption. That's the promise to the Christian. Friends, that's why it is so good when we see people come to faith. Because it doesn't solve all their problems immediately, but we know in the end it solves all their problems. Because everything is going to be redeemed by God. Every judgment that's fallen on them so we need to gather more in to spread the message allow Christ to build his church just be faithful and he will do it that's where we're going to end this week and pick up again in Genesis 9 next week let's pray Father God I want to pray for everyone here who is facing real hardship in life in one way or another. Frustrations at home, frustrations at work, sadness, illness, injury, death. Lord, I can't see how you're going to redeem it. And yet that is what you promised to do for all your people. And so I pray that that would be a great comfort to everyone here. A great hope that allows us each to persist in faith this week. To make it through another day trusting in Jesus, looking to him, remembering that he will set every wrong right. And I pray that you would sustain us by that message every day until we see the truth of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.